Hello. My name is Aaron Zimmerman. I work at a church in Houston, Texas. I'm married to Andrea. I have three children, and I'm very excited to be here tonight. Why are we all here? Not existentially. I mean, why are we here in New York? Are we here to see Philip Seymour Hoffman in the revival of Death of a Salesman? Curtains should be going up in about two minutes. No. Are you kidding, Arthur Miller? Depressing. We're actually here for a little encouragement. That's what has so many people flocking. Haha. To Mockingbird. Dave gets these emails all the time from people all over the country. Mockingbird has saved my life. Mockingbird has saved my ministry. Mockingbird has saved my marriage. Please send your bank account to this man in Nigeria. (laughs) The first three are Mockingbird-related emails. Why are people writing to him all the time? Why do people say things like, you've saved my life? Why do literally thousands of people read this blog? Why are you all here? There's a lot of reasons, but one I think is that Mockingbird tells the truth. In a world hell-bent, and I choose that word intentionally, on denial and obfuscation, we tell the truth, or at least we try as best we can. And this is so needed People think that baseball is the great American pastime. They're wrong. It's denial. On 30 Rock recently, we saw this evidenced. Jack Donaghy, the NBC executive, played by um, Alec Baldwin, who actually recorded the scene of Don Geis' funeral in the chapel where you will soon eat dinner. It is hallowed ground. Jack Donaghy asks the simpleton Kenneth Parcell, who is an NBC page, how he maintains his sunny optimism in light of life's many disappointments and his own personal setbacks. So Jack Donaghy asking Kenneth Parcell, how do you stay so positive in light of your personal setbacks? And we'll see the response. We'll maybe bring the lights down if we can. We good? All right, go ahead, Brian. Next slide. Go ahead. Well, I'll tell you my secret, sir. I lie to myself. Every morning when I wake up, I say everything's gonna be okay, but I'm lying. And I don't know how much longer I can do it. Have a swell night, sir. Every morning I get up and I lie to myself. And that's what a lot of people do. It's the American way. When I think about Mockingbird, uh, I think we are a lot like Mugatu in the classic all-time male modeling movie, Zoolander. Zoolander is played by Ben Stiller, Derek Zoolander, uh, and he... uh, He is the sort of pinnacle of male modeling, and he has all these looks, these sort of trademark looks that he does that have made him what he is. I'm going to show you an opening scene from the movie where he demonstrates his talent, his prowess, as he's being interviewed by a reporter. So, Brian, 
Go ahead. What would you say your trademark is if you have one? Well, I guess the look I'm best known for is blue steel. What's that look like? It's impressive. And then there's Ferrari and the Tigra. The Tigra's a lot softer. It's a little bit uh, more of a catalog look. I use it for footwear sometimes. Can I see that? They were, well, hopefully you got the gist of it. <laughs> and then we'll take a scene from the end of the movie where we see the nemesis of Zoolander, Jacobin Mugatu, a fashion designer who's just had the show that's supposed to make his career. Things have gone terribly wrong, and there was a plot to assassinate a prime minister that's failed, and you have to see the movie. But let's see Mugatu's speech as his uh, plan has fallen apart. Shut up! Enough already, Ballstein! Who cares about Derek Zoolander anyway? The man has only one look, for Christ's sake! Blue Steel? Ferrari? La Tigra? They're the same face! Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! I invented the piano key that time! I invented it! What have you done, Derek? Nothing! You've got nothing! Nothing! Will Ferrell completely becoming that character. So Mugatu is actually telling the truth. If you could see it, all the looks are the same. Ferrari, La Tigra, Blue Steel, they're all the same. So Mugatu says, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Don't you see what's actually going on? And uh, I think I'd like to make an announcement. Dave Zoll has decided to rebrand Mockingbird to Mugatu Ministries. And you'll see that change being rolled out on the website over the next few weeks. Mockingbird, in a world where people are taking crazy pills, and every look is the same, every human being is the same, but we're all in denial and pretend like we're different, Mockingbird tries to tell the truth about what's really going on. That's what this conference is about, borrowing a phrase from Coach Taylor in Friday Night Lights, clear eyes, full hearts. Clear eyes is about seeing clearly, seeing with honesty, telling the truth. Mockingbird tells the truth about two things, people and God. Tonight I'm going to talk about people, what we're actually like, and tomorrow I'm going to talk about God, what God is actually like and what that means for us. But tonight, people. And say Mockingbird says three things about people. The first, people are bad. Now, I hesitated to use that term bad because it's got a lot of connotations and if you grew up in a household where that word was used to describe you, um, I've already triggered all kinds of things. Uh, and folks want to reject that language and I think rightly so as being something that triggers shame and is used to shame others. And so they'll say, they'll counter that with saying, no, it's not that you're bad, you just did a bad thing. It doesn't make you a bad person. And I get that, and I'm not trying to shame anyone, and I'm not using that word in that way. Some object to that term because they want to get away from moral categories entirely when we talk about people. We're not bad or good. We're just different levels of emotional maturity. And when I have said something hurtful, for example, to my wife, I just explain. I'm not quite at that level of emotional maturity yet. And that usually works really well. 
So people sort of say that you can't say that people are bad. And I understand what they're saying. Shame-based language is to be rejected. As Liz Lemon, if I can go back to the deep wells that are in 30 Rock again, Liz Lemon, when she's trying to get Suri, the assistant in the office, to dress more appropriately, more professionally, less provocatively, uh, Liz Lemon, uh, played by Tina Fey, tells her, um, didn't you grow up in some shame-based American religion? And I'm not trying to create another shame-based American religion. That's not why I'm using that language. But I do want to talk about the human condition. And we sort of dance around it a lot. We use terms like flawed and broken, which I think are true and right. But I think sometimes we, we don't get to the depth of the problem. It's really dire. It's really serious. And there's sort of a, a level of gravity that you get when you say that people are bad that you might not say when people, you know, just by people are broken. It's very, it's nice to say people are broken. You know, Bon Jovi sings it. Bruce Springsteen sings it. We all say it. But, um... I want to be a little provocative, and I want to get us thinking and engaged. So I want to say people are bad. I don't mean that they're all bad. I don't mean that there's nothing good in them. I don't want to uh, challenge the biblical teaching about the image of God, that we're created in the image of God, which is very hot right now, and true. You know, that's what the text says. I mean, when I say people are bad, they're bad like a faulty toaster is bad. They, we don't work right. We don't work right. There's something in the operating system that seems to be very off. The output isn't what we want. As it says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Brian, you can bring up that next slide. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? So if the word bad is hard for you, desperately sick is a way of understanding that I'm perfectly willing to accept. We're made to live and act in a certain way. We all sort of feel there's something we want to be, and yet there's the truth of who we are, and there's a gap there. There's a novel that was written for young adults called The Chocolate War. It's one of the most banned books around because it acknowledges that teenagers think about sex. I thought that was funny. Um, but in this book, which talks about conflict among, sort of a Lord of the Flies in a prep school sort of situation, but the main character, J.R. Renault, says this about himself, or the author says this about himself, about this character. He was always thinking one thing and saying another, planning one thing and doing another. He had been Peter a thousand times, and a thousand cocks had crowed in his lifetime. In the most recent episode of This American Life, entitled My Own Worst Enemy, which I think Ethan will have to rewrite the book or publish an addendum because it sort of serves up this whole message on a silver platter. Um, they tell a series of stories about how we go against our own better judgment of who we want to be and what we want to do. It's a whole hour of stories of people doing self-destructive, crazy things. It begins with a story about a man who shows up to work with a very swollen face because, uh, well, people don't know what's wrong. I mean, he looks like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and his colleagues begin to ask him what's happened. He says, well, I'm allergic to crab. Oh, so you didn't know? No, no, I knew I was eating crab. I love crab. <laughs> so his plan, twice a year, he eats crab, and he brings along, he takes Benadryl beforehand, he brings an inhaler, and if it gets really bad, he has his EpiPen there. 
It's just a gamble he's willing to make. They talk to a doctor at an emergency room who says that at least 50% of the people who come in are actually sick with some sort of problem. They've sliced off the finger, whatever. And the other 50% are people who have done things that they know they're not supposed to do. The diabetic who's not following the plan. Uh, There are people with esophageal problems who come in on a weekly basis with steak stuck in their esophagus. They've been told, you can't eat steak. But they like steak, and so they're there on a weekly basis. My own worst enemy. There's something in us that seems to generate these desires and motivations somehow irresistible to do things that hurt, injure, diminish, kill ourselves and others. I understand why people bristle at this message. It is, like an Arthur Miller play, very depressing. So people water it down. Again, as I said, yes, I may be a little bit flawed or nobody's perfect. I'm only human. You ever notice how people only say I'm only human when they've done a bad thing? They never, you know, win the game. I'm only human. (laughs) The inherent goodness or ability or rightness of people, while we may not come right out and say we're not bad, We imply it in all kinds of things we say and do. When you hear people say, so-and-so made bad choices, the implicit assumption is that there is a universe that exists where he could have made good choices. When people offer advice to you, they're assuming that you're good enough to A, hear it, B, receive it, and C, do what they actually say. When preachers challenge people, That reveals an assumption that the preacher has about the people to whom he or she is speaking. You know, preachers love to end with a challenge. I challenge you today to eat more donuts. They love to challenge. And that, um, when people, when preachers do that, I, of course, always think about the song Shadrach by the Beastie Boys. The only, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of references to Old Testament prophecy in rap, but this is the only one I know that talks about the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and in that song, in that, uh, those lyrics, the line says, um, got more stories than J.D. got Salinger. I hold the title and you are the challenger. That is brilliant for so many reasons. But I think, you know, you are the challenger. There's so so when, the next time a preacher challenges you, just think about that. And when a preacher challenges his or her congregation, they're assuming they have the capacity to do those things. Unfortunately, we're not like that. I have a good friend who was in ministry for 10 years, and he ended every sermon with an application, what you were challenged to do. And after 10 years, he had the courage to sort of look at his track record, and he realized that nobody had ever done a single thing he'd said. Poet Mary Carr, and it sounds, it makes it sound like I read poetry. I only read the poetry that Dave puts on the blog. So um, I'm impressive in other ways, but not that. But poet Mary Carr 
uh, had an interview that you put up on the blog, Dave, and she uh, talks about her conversion um, from um, sort of agnosticism slash atheism to a devout and profound faith in Christ in the Roman Catholic Church. And she got a lot of heat for it from her colleagues and uh, her readers. And one person wrote on her website, you know, why did you do this? Don't you know that Catholicism is just a crutch? And she said, well, yeah. And if you had only one leg, you'd want a crutch too. She gets that people have one leg. And so many pulpits are filled with preachers who are telling one-legged people to run faster and jump higher. Mockingbird reminds people in general, and Christians specifically, because we seem to be the best at forgetting it, that we have one leg. And I think this is one of Mockingbird's major contributions to the wider conversation going on out there in the world about church and God and religion. It's a big conversation. It's all over. And the church is figuring out what it's going to do and say in the coming generations. And Mockingbird sort of just stands there doing this one thing, reminding people, excuse me, there's this sick, gnarled, desperately sick thing in you. St. Paul said, sin living in you that works all day long and never sort of runs out of energy simultaneously generating selfish desires and the rationalizations that make them seem totally reasonable. So Mockingbird tells the truth. People are bad. The second truth that Mockingbird recognizes is that people are blind. We're blind to our bad. People can't see what's wrong with themselves. They deceive, self-justify so well. They don't even notice when they're going off the rails. Jesus had clear eyes, though. He saw people as they were, full of libidinal urges and massively hypocritical. As he said in Matthew 7, Brian, go ahead. You're so patient. Thank you so much. It's like 10 minutes between slides. You could be automated, but we decided not to do that because we value the American worker. Matthew 7, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, Jesus asks, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? And he doesn't say that just some people have a beam of wood. He seems to think that everybody has a huge log in your eye. You're trying to remove a little speck of sawdust out of somebody else's while the whole tree is in your face. The blindness is profound, and it takes something jarring to remove it. This is why God, I think, designed life, and in particular, marriage and child-rearing. Those things cause you to realize the extent to which you are blind about your own condition, your own personal beam of wood. You know, take marriage, for example. And you could say this almost about any relationship that lasts longer than six months, even friendships. So this... Uh, applies to us all. But uh, marriage goes like this uh, for many people. You get married, and about six months into it, you begin to realize that you're not as happy as you thought you should be. And then you realize that what makes you upset is that this person doesn't agree with everything you say. And they don't want to do everything that you want to do when you want to do it. And they don't affirm and meet every emotional need you have whenever you have it. In other words, um, uh, they are a separate person from you. And if you have even a shred of self-awareness, you realize that 
you are all about you. And you like people that just reflect your own glory back at you. And then the light bulb comes on. And you realize who you are. Some of the blindness breaks. Kids, as I said, do this too. Um, they, um, they open your eyes to the blindness. You know, first, you know, they weaken you by taking away your sleep, your autonomy, the illusion of control that you might have. Their demands are unrelenting and inflexible. They have to eat every day. Even several times a day. And every young parent or somebody who's raising children has that moment where the rage that just wells up inside you is just inhuman. Or maybe very human. You didn't know you could be that angry at something so cute. But kids pull back your carefully crafted layers of identity. And expose your heart of darkness. I hope somebody's playing literary and cultural illusion bingo as I'm going through this talk. Joseph Conrad, for those of you keeping score. And this still happens as your kids age, too. It's not just the early years. You know, you realize you're teaching them values that you violate on a daily basis. No dessert. And then after they go to bed, you are raiding the Ben and Jerry's in the back of the freezer. Or you realize how much you need them to be something that has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you. I see this a lot. It seems to be happening more now. I'd be interested to hear observations of folks that have seen multiple generations of parents raise children. But it seems the current generation, more than in the past, is really interested in how their children appear in a way that I don't remember being true before. If you see advertisements used to sell children's products from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, children look like children. Um, they're wearing children's clothing, you know, jeans and T-shirts and sneakers and things like that. And then, um, and now, I think every child has a, a contract with Abercrombie and Fitch, um, although it depends on your own demographic. You know, um, if you're kind of in that preppy world, there's Crew Cuts, which is J. Crew's line for children. Um, there's a whole line of embroidered things for people. I've never known a child that said, I think I want to wear something embroidered today. You know, it's everything to do with the parents. Or you go and you look at hipsters whose children are dressed ironically. You know, children wearing little ACDC onesies. They have no idea about ACDC or Back in Black. But there they are wearing the, you know, it's ironic because it's a baby. So, uh, you know, kids are walking billboards for our own identities that we're making for ourselves. And if you are given eyes to see, you may realize that aspect of your blindness as well. So you get the point. We're blind to our bad. And, and I think this is one of the things that Mockingbird tries to point out, the fact that we can't really see that well. And uh, that's why we do what we do. Mockingbird does not, in general, produce gigantic, multi-volume theological tomes. Um, we are sneakier than that because nobody reads those. There's like five people that read those. And um, we use sports and art and music and culture and movies to kind of get around the defenses. You think you're just reading about the Hold Steady's latest album or what Dave is thinking about Michael Jackson this week or whatever it is. And, um, but really, we're trying to get past the blindness, trying to get past that log in your eye. So Mockingbird tells the truth. People are blind. 
The third and final thing that Mockingbird tells the truth about, and this one might be the most radical one, because I've said that people are bad and that people are blind. The third truth we tell is that Christians are people. So everything I've said about people applies to them too. Now I know that St. Paul says that we're new creations. And I know about St. John's epistles. And I know about walking in the light. And I know about Pentecost. And I know about the Holy Spirit and his power to make us new. I went to seminary and I have the tattoo and secret badge and elitist vocabulary to prove it. (laughs) But I also know that St. Paul spent a lot of time writing to Christians who were still acting like people. They were still narcissistic, petty, lustful, bloodthirsty, self-righteous, fear-driven, deceitful, smug, mean, and just people. And you know, they were people who lived a lot closer to the times of Christ than you and I. I mean, they were closer to the original event. They didn't need the footnotes in their Bible to understand the cultural context of Jesus' parables. They lived the context, baby. They didn't need to do a Seder on Maundy Thursday with Manashevitz matzah to understand the Eucharist. A little close to home for some of you. They knew Jesus or people that knew him. And yet, they were not very good Christians. They still had plenty of bad days. So about Christians, we can quote uh, Pearl Jam's Corduroy. Everything has changed. Absolutely nothing's changed. The phrase we often use comes from Martin Luther. You know it if you've read the blog for any length of time. Simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously justified and sinners. We're loved and accepted and we're who we are. We're like, uh, you know, that it's the sacred and profane living inside us at the same time. There's this great line from a song by the Hold Steady. Make the sign of the cross with your cigarette. Think about a hand holding a cigarette, which you can't do because it's illegal everywhere. But you can imagine. We are in Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet there are still these parts of the human heart untouched by the gospel. You know, in my own personal story, this idea was very hard for me to accept. I had received a form of Christianity that told me I was so qualitatively, and seminary word alert, ontologically different, that I had been so thoroughly changed that I should pretty regularly see a decrease in sin in my life. I didn't. Or it was like whack-a-mole, you know, the classic game at Chuck E. Cheese. And I went to Chuck E. Cheese yesterday. That is true. My son turned six and we went to Chuck E. Cheese and there was no whack-a-mole. Thank you. I was looking to relieve some stress and I couldn't do it. 
you know, but whack-a-mole is that game where this little mole pops up and you hit it with the mallet and then another one comes up, you hit it with the mallet. That's what my sort of sin control was like. I would just, you know, get this under control and then something else would pop up. Because as it turns out, Christians are people. So that's what we're saying about people. And uh, Brian, you have been so faithful. I think you can sit down now. Um, Thank you so much. Well done. Good and faithful servant. We're saying this. Just to recap, people are bad, people are blind, and Christians are people. And I want to close by giving a clarifying point. When, and when a preacher says he's going to close, it means 15 more minutes. So I want to clarify one thing, and then I want to say why all this sort of sobering, heavy truth is actually good news. Clarifying point. I'm not blessing sin. I'm not saying, hey, you're bad, I'm bad, that's great, let's go get a filet of fish. A vastly underappreciated sandwich. Whenever they have them for a dollar, I mean, that is a red-letter day. We're also not saying, you are really bad, and you should feel really bad about yourself. You know, because shame and guilt just tear you up. So if you're feeling guilty, you should feel really guilty about that. (laughs) All we're saying is that whatever approach we're going to take in this whole project of following Christ, let's at least approach it with honesty about where we're starting and who we are. So now that we're there, God willing, a little bit honest, where we admit people are bad and people are blind and Christians are people, now that we're exposed, why is that good news? Because it opens the door to grace. It opens the door to love, to acceptance, to reality, to relief. Let me explain. First, if you admit that you're bad, that whatever, you know, desperately sick, that there's something in you that's twisted. I taught a communion class recently for third graders, and I called this thing the bad idea machine. There's something in you that's this bad idea machine. So whatever way you want to describe it, and the kids got it, actually, um, and so do some of the parents. If you get that, it's immensely freeing. Because if you're laboring under the illusion that you're basically good, you'll be extremely frustrated and unable to explain the vast majority of your actions and the actions of others. You won't know why you're so enraged at traffic. I mean, it's just traffic. Like, you'll be home 10 minutes later, and you're about to have a heart attack in the car. Um, And you're a pacifist. Why is this happening to you? You won't realize why you're so overbearing to your children. Like, why is it so important to you that their socks are on correctly, you know? Um, You'll be um, like the line in U2's God Part 2 from Rattle and Hum. I don't believe in the Uzi that just went off in my hand. You won't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. And you won't understand other people. 
I have a friend who in one year of his life had uh, um, a man that was his sponsor in AA relapse and commit suicide. The man who had run the treatment center that he attended had uh, fallen off the wagon and the whole center had collapsed. And his therapist had um, an inappropriate relationship with a client and lost his license. If you don't have a realistic understanding of human beings, there's no way you could fathom any of that. And you'd walk away from whatever worldview you're using to make sense of reality. Because obviously it can't cope with that. And you think those are one-off occurrences? Mm -mm. So if you don't get this about people, you won't be able to understand yourself or others. You'll be surprised a lot and you'll be confused a lot. But if you do get it, you'll be compassionate to yourself and others, and you'll be ready to hear about a system where performance doesn't determine your worth. It's good news to acknowledge that you're blind. You know, your own self-awareness is iffy at best. You probably don't even realize what you're doing wrong. I mean, you think you know what needs to be fixed in your life, but you probably don't really realize it. If you ask your friends, don't do it. I don't recommend that. It's painful. The things that you think you're doing well, things you think are good, probably don't give you that many gold stars. You have a beam of wood in your eye that you can't see. And the things that God is really concerned about in your life, you probably don't recognize. The thing about this, if we can't even rightly perceive ourselves, it means that we're never going to get righteousness right on our own. I mean, can't you look back at something in your life that you thought you did that for the right reason? A really good thing. I mean, your moral pinnacle. And you look back at it now and you realize it was just sort of about your own project. Or you look back on a time when you did something really bad that you regret. You know, it was a very um, profound experience of shame and failure for yourself. But you look back at it now and you realize, you know, there were things that were going on in me emotionally and you have a little bit more grace for yourself. You kind of understand why you did those things now that you have some distance. So in the moment, you can't see why you're doing what you're doing. You don't see all the factors that are in the mix. So you can't really see the problem in order to fix it. So if you're going to get righteousness, it's going to have to come from outside you. It's going to have to be God's project, not yours. I remember a time in my life when my righteousness was my business. I mean, it was, that was my business. I set out to do that every day. And I would set goals every year and how I would accomplish those. Not like, you know, make a million by I'm 35 um, or, you know, climb the Mount Kilimanjaro or anything like that um, because I already did that before I was 13. <laughs> but, you know, goals for self-improvement. And I never did a very good job. About the only thing I accomplished was increasing my self-righteousness and my self-loathing. <laughs> Winning. <laughs> and then I realized, uh, not overnight, but I realized that my righteousness was God's business, not mine. I'm a lot happier now. Finally, it's good news that Christians are people. You can regard yourself with some humor and humility instead of that hideous, ill-fitting, cheap suit of false identity that you think is so great.
And very importantly, it means that you can tell the truth about your life. When I was very much living under a false gospel of Jesus-aided self-improvement, I was in total denial about the extent, frequency, and nature of sin in my life because it didn't fit the narrative. The narrative, the story that I was telling myself, that I was banking on, was that I was getting better. So if something didn't fit that, just put it in the denial drawer and forgot about it. I just couldn't acknowledge it. I couldn't deal with it because it didn't fit the narrative, didn't fit the grid. So, for example, I wasn't really that good at having a regular life of prayer and Bible reading. But when I did have a quiet time, that discipline of having your prayer and your scripture study, when I did do that, I inflated it. I gave myself like 25 gold stars. And I saw that almost akin to the experience that Peter and James and John had with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when I... um. And I, I just, I, you know, I would just inflate those experiences. And when I went a long time without them, I would rationalize and justify and have all kinds of excuses. And when I came to understand the gospel, I finally was able to say, hey, I'm not really good at this. I'm horrible at having quiet time. I never have them. Like every six months. God, what do you think about that? Can you help me? My prayer life now is perfect. <laughs> the end. Well, my prayer life is my prayer life, and it is what it is. It's real. It's not contrived. It comes out of a place of need. I strive to be honest. I often have to check myself. Whenever I realize that I'm talking to God the way I would never talk to a human being, when was the last time you said, I just want to, to anyone other than God? Lord, we just want to... <laughs> Letting it sink in. My prayer life is what it is. I see that in God I live and move and have my being. Now I've come to realize that even when I didn't have a quiet time, in God I still lived and moved and had my being. God is still at work, regardless of what I'm doing. But I'm getting into the territory of tomorrow's talk. Last word. I said that these three realities open you up to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your worth is going to have to come from something other than your performance. Salvation is going to have to come from outside you and your efforts. Before we go off to eat a delicious dinner... Let me just remind you of the sweetness of the gospel. God knows you at a gut level to the marrow of your bones and the darkest recesses of your heart. He knows what you're thinking about in the middle of the night. He knows what you look like in the morning. He knows what you did last summer. Thank you, Dave, for laughing. God knows you. And as we say in the prayer book, God whose property is always to have mercy. Jesus Christ willingly, 
freely, lovingly, gave his life for yours, traded places with you. Your sins are his, his righteousness is yours. Know that. Rest in that. Now go play. Amen.